Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce a very special episode of Just Something About Her is my producer, Siri Soffer. Siri, do you want to tell everyone who's on today? It would be my honor. So today we have Hillary Rodham Clinton on the show. She's a former lawyer, (laughs) senator, first lady, secretary of state, and the first woman nominated to be the presidential candidate of a major party. And for those who are newcomers to the show, Jen, do you want to tell them how you first met Secretary Clinton? Yes. So I worked for her husband in his White House from 1993 through the duration when she was first lady. And then I worked with her when she was Secretary of State. I overlapped with her in the Obama administration for about a year when I was in the communications operation the Obama White House. And then in 2016, I was her communications director. And tell me, what was that first meeting between you two like when you became her communications director on the campaign? We had this incredible meeting the very first day I started working for her. So this would have been in March of 2015. And it was me and Christina Shockey, who had been Mrs. Obama's communications director and was going to be the deputy communications director of the Clinton campaign. And Hillary sat us down and just like build out Mm -hmm. what it had been like to be her for the last 40 years and to hear all this in her own voice. And from the time from when her husband was governor of Arkansas and she hadn't changed her name and people in Arkansas were really uncomfortable with it and her husband lost re-election and part of Bill Clinton's team came to her and said, so she's like, okay, that means she's uncomfortable in the state. I'll change my name. And then she changes her name to Clinton. Everybody's like, why did you change your name? (laughs) So wild. You know, the whole thing, all the the difficult years of the White House, going Mm -hmm. through impeachment, what that was like for her. And she was so interesting, Sarah, because she was like sort of stood outside of this person, this thing that's like Hillary Clinton. She was sort of bewildered by all of it. And she says, you know, you need to know this because you're going to be dealing with the public's perceptions of me and the press. And she said, you know, you should never censor yourself. You should always say what you think and tell me to do what you think I need to do. But I'm going to have some skepticism about how much the press can change or how they're going to react to me because of all of this. Did you believe her or did you have to see it for yourself to really understand what she was talking about? I knew that there were very dug in perceptions of Hillary Clinton and I knew that mm-hmm. she was a polarizing figure. There's there air quotes people air quotes. around that. <laughs> But I didn't think that was because she's a woman. And now I do. And now I think that these like polarizing perceptions of her are about this woman who's always for her whole adult life been stepping out of the role that women normally play, right? And Mm -hmm. that makes us, that's confounding. It's sexing. There's something we don't recognize. There's something about her we just don't like, right? Mm -hmm. Which is exactly where the name of the podcast came from, right? Yes. I mean, you know, we did a lot of research on the campaign, focus groups, polling, but also just in, you know, everyday life, you encounter people and they would say, like, I don't know, there's just something about her I don't like, or I I don't know what it is, but there's just something about her I don't trust. And the fact that people can't pinpoint what it is that they don't like about her gives them permission to not like her. Mm -hmm. So it's really insidious. And that's why I think it's so important that we understand what's at the root of these kinds of criticisms of women. You know, you you hear it said about Kamala Harris. I mean, I do see progress in places, but also I see this particular thing. There's just something about her continue to vex 
women seeking power. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, we're recording this episode on March 25th. So we're really just peaking hard at the end of Women's History Month. It's and been a big month. One of the things that's been written about and when it was brought to my attention was like a glass shattering realization is that for the most part, Hillary Clinton hasn't really been part of all the compilations of the most influential or trailblazing women during this Women's History Month. It's really frustrating. <laughs> um, yes, it's this phenomenon that a woman who's a social researcher, writer, Susan Bordeaux, she's written about this. She calls it the erasure of Hillary Clinton. And from the Girl Scouts videos to memes of women from Biden's inauguration, even the Senate Democrats, they had a tweet that had this image of women leaders and throughout history, even though Hillary Clinton was the Democratic nominee, even though Hillary Clinton was a Senate Democrat, she is not among the women that are portrayed there. And <laughs> part of the reason why I think erasure is really important to delve into is because I think the people who do it don't think they're hurting Hillary. It's like, well, she's just so polarizing. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't remind people of her because she upsets people. And that's not good for yeah. her. And it's not good for the cause. Right. Don't look back. Look forward. Look forward. Like, why would we ever want to, like, investigate what, what came before? And it happened the very first Women's March, you know, like, mm -hmm. that literally happened because of her in 2017. She wasn't invited to speak. And it was this thing. And... You know, what happened to Hillary happens to women every single day on a smaller scale. Every right. single day, women go through, you know, some version of that. And if you, you know, lift her up, embrace her, learn from what happened to her, that's going to help all women going forward. I think that, you know, in, in 2021 America, we can forget, you know, the universe in, in some ways is very different. You know, that election, 2016 election did change the way that we view women for the better. But like, just listen to some of the coverage from 2016 and what was said about her to see what we were battling against. In the campaign 2016 segment tonight, is Hillary Clinton trustworthy? 69% of those polled said they're concerned by criticism that Clinton has a, quote, record of being dishonest. When voters were asked, what is the first word that comes to mind when you think of Hillary Clinton? Words like liar, dishonest, untrustworthy were at the top of the list. And despite her campaign talking about how she plans to be more authentic, Clinton stumbled when asked to describe the real Hillary Clinton in three words. Now, we all remember she was accused of stealing, I think it was China or silverware from the White House when she left for Chappaqua. Madam Secretary, are you ready? I am ready, my dear. Madam Secretary, welcome to Just Something About Her. A phrase, perhaps, that is somewhat meaningful in your life. <laughs> yes, you and I have encountered that a few times, I think. So the point of, like, of this show is to try to decode all of the gender bias that reveals itself in the world. And mm -hmm. my experience from the campaign is the inspiration for this. So we've been building to this particular conversation for a long time. There's a lot about what happened to you that I want to decode. In What Happened, you wrote about the, these three gender descriptors that you said you encountered a lot. Mm -hmm. They are inauthenticity, mm -hmm. untrustworthy, mm -hmm. and divisive, mm -hmm. right? So I want to take each of these because I, I really think that we can decode some of this stuff and make people see this in a new light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have to be very clear at the outset. I do not believe that everyone who holds these views of you, of even you, 
or sexist, right? To see that is to miss the point because the reason why it's so persistent and pervasive is because people are so certain that they are not sexist that they become blind to the gender biases we all have. Hmm. So to start with inauthenticity, I remember Mm -hmm. a time towards the end of the campaign, very end in Florida, monsoon, do you remember that? It was like a, it was a to- I do. A total. Yeah, I was speaking outside, as I yes. remember. It was very near the end of October. It was like Sunday, I think. Uh, before, yeah. <laughs> and we were sitting on the tarmac, and I saw this video of like a locker-up rally. And you're just like, oh, my God, okay, fine. If you don't agree with Hillary Clinton on policy and you don't want to vote for her, fine. But this irrational hatred, like where does it come from? And then I just had this sort of lightning bolt that struck me that I thought, oh, my God. We have a fatal flaw in our strategy because I've been trying to prove that Hillary Clinton, as a first woman, can do this job as it has always been done, which means as a man has always done it, right? I've been trying to jam her into this ill-fitting suit for this entire campaign. No wonder people think she's inauthentic, right? No wonder. I thought I came into this job really prepared to help you because I'd been through so much. I worked for two presidents and been through a lot of presidential campaigns, but I'd never worked for a woman. And on our, my first day of the campaign, you laid out for me, me and Christina Shockey, the deputy communications director, and you're like, look, you kind of shared just like what had happened to you in the public perception of you for like 40 years. Mm. You said at the end of it, I'm just a serious and simple person, and I'm not sure why it provokes such rage in people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would respond like this, Jen, because I think it is a very difficult balance to strike. Because the job has been only done by men and the job has only been filled by men. And so people's mental images of what a president looks like, sounds like, acts like, is a male paradigm. Yeah. And you do have to be yourself, which I've always felt like I have been consistently, whether people uh, agree with me or not. But you have to be willing to recognize that you're going up against a very settled image. Right. And it is not personal. It's just when people think of a president, they think of a man. When they think of a commander in chief, they think of a man. And look, we got very, very close. And we got close in part because a lot of people, a majority of people who voted thought I could do the job. And they thought I could do the job as they understood the job. So they were able to put in their minds my image in the Oval Office and more power to them. Because when you're choosing a president, whether you're conscious of it or not, you are really thinking through all of these expectations that you bring to your voting decision. I think there's something else going on with the inauthenticity, and Mm -hmm. it is more rooted in that than trying to... I I wasn't being forced into, quote, a male role. I was running for an office that had only been held by men. And so there's a difference there. And we saw that in the last Democratic primary. We had more women running. Yes. They look different from one another. Some were tall, some were short, some wore pants, some wore skirts. None of them won anything, Jen. None of them won a single caucus or a single primary because in part, people who even voted for me, I think were saying to themselves, look, I can't take a chance. I've got to go back to form. I have to vote for a man because all these other people out there are going to vote for a man. 
And so we have a long way to go. But it's not just in politics and it's not just running totally. for president. Totally. I mean, you know, Megan Rapinoe was at the White House on Equal Pay Day talking about what it's like to be one of the greatest soccer players in the world and to be disrespected and discriminated against. The NCAA March Madness Tournament is going on. The women have been marginalized to the point where even the worst offenders have to be, you know, aware of what they're doing. No weight room, you know, no good food, no uh, decals on the playing floor. So women don't play basketball and women don't play soccer at the highest levels in the minds of a lot of the people making these decisions. So I think it's important to open the aperture. And I just interviewed Abby Wambach for my podcast. Yeah, yeah, Abby and Glennon. I interviewed Abby and Glennon. And, you know, Abby said something which really, you know, just broke my heart. She was honored by ESPN at the end of her career. Peyton Manning, Kobe Bryant, and Abby were given big awards for their lifetime achievements. And until recently, Abby had scored more goals in World Cup competition than anyone, man or woman. Wonderful ceremony. They're walking off the stage. They're going to an after party. And all of a sudden, it hits Abby. You know, Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant have been at the top of their professions. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars. They're going into retirement, financially secure. I have to go figure out how I can make money to pay my mortgage. So this is so deep. And you're right that people tell themselves, you know, I'm not sexist. I'm not a misogynist. But their actions speak so much louder in the way that they treat women at the highest levels of politics, of sports, of business, of media, you name it. And the inauthenticity is rooted in this image about what a president or a basketball star or a soccer star or you name it is supposed to look like and act like. And we still have a long way to go. And, you know, speaking out about what happened to the, you know, women basketball players in the NCAA or the fight for equality of pay and recognition among women soccer players is just as important as speaking out about women in politics, especially those who, you know, decide to run for president. It reveals itself when you see women at the highest level in their profession. Yeah. That's where I think yeah. we can like see it more. They clearly. somehow just don't belong. So by definition, it can't be your mental construct that is wrong because you're basing it on millions of you know data points yeah. and thousands of years of history. Yeah. It must be something about her. Yes, she must be doing something wrong. And this is what, like, I'm talking about, like, divisive, right? So that's another one. And I think this is the most corrosive, okay? Mm -hmm. I think this applied to the women that were running in 2020, right? It was like, well, Hillary Clinton, even though she got more votes, didn't end up as president. So therefore, we can't do that again. Oh, my God, Mm -hmm. that was a disaster. Mm -hmm. So it is compounding the problem because you, first of all, you're punishing the woman, Gee, why did she end up as a divisive figure? Maybe because you thought she was inauthentic and Mm -hmm. untrustworthy and all that stuff compounds. And then that's the result. The result is that it's divisive. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. also, it's a hell of a lot easier for America to say, wow, I guess Hillary Clinton did something wrong because she was so polarizing Mm -hmm. than it is Mm -hmm. to look the misogyny in the face and Mm -hmm. realize Wow, look what happened Mm -hmm. to her. That's because of all of the gender bias that we still Mm. hold. And that gives permission to erase, right? Mm. 
well, you know, we love her and we wish her really well, but we don't want to drudge up the past because she was divisive. And it's like, no, if you don't start dissecting this stuff and really understanding what's at the root of it, it's going to persist because she was divisive because she was like out of the norm. And it sounds dated to say that about 2016 or 2021, but still when women reach the top of their fields, we're still a little uneasy about it. That's just the way, unfortunately, the you know, human experience is manifesting itself. And the divisive label is not exclusively applied to women, but you're absolutely right. It is often dredged up. And why are we divisive? Because we speak out and we often challenge those constructs, those paradigms that people live with. And you know what? That's uncomfortable, Jen. Yeah. You know, that that's not easy. You know, I went back at somebody's request recently and looked at everything that I said about civil rights and racial reckoning and the mothers of the movement, yeah. women who had lost their children to gun violence or police violence. And I realized that this white supremacy didn't just happen recently. I mean, it was out there. And my saying that we needed to put ourselves in the shoes of black moms and dads, and we needed to be more empathetic and understanding, and we needed to look hard at police accountability. Those were all divisive in 2016 because they hadn't been talked about by anybody running for president ever as the nominee of one of the two major parties because people understood the men who ran before that, you know what, that'll just stir up stuff. Let's just slide over that. Let's not confront that. And here I am saying, you know, look, you know, we are privileged and our children are not the ones that are being told, be really careful when you go out. It's our, you know, black neighbors and their kids. And so divisive is often used when people are uncomfortable with truth telling whether it comes from a man or a woman, but it's considered more threatening, yeah. more out of the ordinary if it comes you know, from a woman. So it was a lot of things, just the fact that I was a woman. I was always amused when people would act like, oh, you know, electing a woman's no big deal. Why is everybody so excited about it? Who is excited about it? And of course, it was a huge deal and it would have been an enormous deal. And I have been watching very carefully how Vice President Harris is being covered and what's being said about her. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the same kind of sexist tropes and allegations are beginning to bubble up. I've seen a an unfortunate repetition of uh, preachers in pulpits and places in our country calling her Jezebel. Really? Wow. Jezebel. And you know, this is the way you create the other. You create the divisiveness so that people who are hearing this or people who are being told other things about our first woman vice president begin to kind of put her in categories rather than saying, hey, you know, I, I'm going to watch her and I'm going to evaluate and I like that and I, I appreciate what she said there and what is this about? No, let's categorize her. Let's lock her into pre-existing characterizations that we then can manipulate. Exactly. 
All right. On that note, we need to take a quick break to sell some ads. When we get back, we'll get into that final descriptor, untrustworthy. That's next on Just Something About Her with Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Welcome back to this special episode of Just Something About Her with Secretary Hillary Clinton. You know, I'm always looking for positive solutions. (laughs) Go, girl. (laughs) One of the things I had to realize while working for you is that people are just going to have different questions about a woman than they are about a man. And some bars we're never going to be able to reach. Like topic Mm. three, untrustworthy. Yeah. So, of course, your emails were the manifestation of this, right? It's like we were suspicious of a woman seeking power and your emails became the manifestation of that suspicion. And, you know, I remember at one point I was desperate for us to move beyond emails, put it past us as we're heading into the fall of 2015. And so I made you do these hideous interviews during Labor Day weekend of 2015. It started off with an interview with Andrea Mitchell. And based on how that went, I knew it was not going to end there. Welcome, Secretary Clinton. Thank Thank you so much for doing this interview. You said recently that using your personal email while Mm -hmm. you were Secretary Mm -hmm. of State was not the best choice and that you take responsibility. Are you sorry? Well, I certainly wish that I had made a different choice. And I know why the American people have questions about it. And I wanted to... It was like, you don't want her to apologize. You want her to confess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like to something like some kind of crime that she didn't commit this is like a badgering it's just like of a woman you know that's that's happened throughout history like back to witch trials like and in our modern you know ears and eyes we we don't recognize it but i think at the root of it was just like i'm suspicious of you and it's never going to be enough mm-hmm. in the summer of 16 again that it was like what's the clinton campaign gonna do about the trust issue and we were in cincinnati yeah. we'd done an, an event with elizabeth warren And I said to you something like, I think I get it now. What's going to happen is you're going to get elected president. You're going to do a good job. And then people are going to trust you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. It's proof is in the pudding, so to speak. That is like that is just Mm -hmm. different for women. But you know, it was always so frustrating because by any measure and, you know, you had PolitiFact and other fact finding organizations concluding repeatedly I was the most factual person running for president. I was the most, quote, trustworthy because I would say the same thing. I would, you know, have facts to back up what I said. It didn't matter. It it did not matter. And, you know, when I did the 11 hours of testimony on Benghazi, which was the, you know, yeah. real effort by the Republicans, which unfortunately succeeded with too many people, of rendering me untrustworthy. Seems like there's a pattern pattern of change in your story. I got rave reviews like, oh my gosh, you answered all the questions. Of course I did. I mean, I happened to be speaking about facts and truth. Madam Secretary, you're welcome to answer the question if you would like to. Well, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book, Hard Choices. I'd be glad to send it to you, Congressman. Right. And it revealed that there was nothing at the root of it. There was nothing there. It did not matter. Because there's a psychological phenomenon, which the Republicans have been expert at, by the way, and which Kevin McCarthy, their leader in the House, admitted was intended to destroy me. So I come out of the State Department with, I don't know, 67, 69 percent approval, et cetera. So this terrible tragedy in Benghazi was used as a proxy for not trustworthy. You know, something happened. We don't know what it was, but something happened. Right. 
Pneumonia gate is with like a proxy for. Oh yeah, pneumonia gate. All right. I mean, let's listen to some of these headlines. And we begin with that breaking news on Hillary Clinton's health. We're now learning she's been diagnosed with pneumonia. The Clinton campaign created this sense of a cover-up from a Friday to a Sunday. Which means the campaign waited two days to disclose the illness. It is rooted in their understanding of the psychology that if you make false accusations against somebody repeatedly, people will start to say, well, I don't know, but there must be something there. Why do they keep saying this stuff? Well, they keep saying it because they want to destroy your credibility. They want to undermine your character. And yes, they want to make you, quote, untrustworthy. They're really good at it. And unfortunately, the mainstream press has been sucked into it time and time again. You know, the New York Times going into, you know, partnership with Steve Bannon on something called Clinton Cash. All of it was a lie. Every single bit of it was a lie. But the New York Times could not help themselves. And they quote the paper of record. And yet every time it was proven again and again, there was nothing to Uranium One. There was nothing to, oh, my God, Pizzagate. There was nothing to email, whitewater, you name it. The story saying there was nothing to it is like a little tiny story in the back of the paper compared to all of the front page headlines. And, you know, being a woman and being a first, I know that sells papers and I guess sells ads on, you know, cable or whatever. But if I'm just the ordinary kind of normal person telling the truth and trying to tell you what I would do for you and why I think I could get it done, you know, that's not very interesting. So the Republicans and their allies, both above the watermark with the mainstream press, understood, feed them stuff, make allegations, force them to cover it. So then I'd have to say, no, that's not true. Or here, let me explain it. And yet it just created this image like, oh, there must be something there. And then below the radar with their partnership with, you know, Cambridge Analytica and WikiLeaks and the Russians just flood social media with more stuff that's not true. They're masters at it. And thankfully in the 2020 election, because people did have some more awareness and the platforms themselves and the press itself understood they'd been played rather dramatically in 2016, they became more careful and people became more skeptical. And that's all to the good. But we have a long way to go before we purge ourselves of this deliberate effort to mislead people and to create straw men and women that then can be you know, held up and knocked down. Yeah, it doesn't just happen to women. Mm-hmm. I remember we had a really tough debate prep in September of 2016. And I walked into the room and I just felt like the debate prep room was just like a bad, it was just like we were all in a very bad place. I think Bannon had just become the counselor and David Bossy came to the campaign on Trump's side. And, <laughs> you know, it was just like, we just knew we were in for a whole fall of just like, mm-hmm. my God, like talk about the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. And you know, I feel like we were all feeling pretty dispirited about it. And so I was like, I went through a litany of all of the insane things you had been through on this campaign from like 17 people. When you look at the Republican side, and the Democratic side attacking you every single day, a congressional investigation around Benghazi, an FBI investigation, <laughs> Vladimir Putin, you know, Jim Comey, like all of it. <laughs> 
Boy, I really got under their skin, didn't I? Mean, I mean, exactly. It was like, let's not mm. be dispirited mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what they have done, but be amazed that it's a fucking miracle that <laughs> you have gotten through that and how frustrated they must be that they can't mm. stop you. Yeah. Well, they figured out a way in the end. Well, they- no. <laughs> I mean, they figured you won. I did. I did. But the point is, through all of that, and go, you know, mm. go back to Hillary Care in '94 when it was yeah. so controversial yeah. that you wanted universal health care yeah. for people, and were defeated by that. You know, that was part of like the untrustworthy stuff all starting then too. And you come back and you do chip, you do children's health insurance program, right? Mm-hmm. You run for senate, it's kind of controversial. You become more popular as senator, you're won by a bigger uh, margin in 2006. Mm-hmm. You run for president in eight, mm-hmm. you don't win, you come back and do it again. Mm-hmm. they don't stop you. You could have just, you know, gone away and at any point. I'm sure you would have been happy being a lawyer at the Children's Defense Fund your entire career. You could have done that, you know? <laughs> but you keep coming back. How do you do it? And why yeah. do you do it? You know, you know, when you were talking about healthcare, I, you know, sure. there was that documentary, I guess it's still playing on Hulu, called Hillary. And they found footage that I had either never seen or had forgotten about, like my being burned in effigy for trying to get, you know, universal healthcare. So... I am quite used to it. And look, I really believe in what we can do together. That's why my slogan, Stronger Together, meant so much to me. And it's so interesting to see how it keeps coming back and having new life and other people's you know, voices. Because I do think that we have a tremendous chance, and I've got every finger and toe crossed, that the Biden-Harris administration keeps going to deliver on so much of what I and others have advocated for over a lot of years. And I look at the opposition. I look at the people who are after me. These are, you know, not people that I would ever give into under any circumstances. I mean, good Lord. I mean, why would I ever listen to the crazy attacks coming from, you know, the extreme right, coming from, you know, Russian proxies, coming from the whole, you know, bar scene and Star Wars. Why would I ever do that? These people don't care about anybody but themselves. They worship money and power, and I am against them. And I've always been against them since I was, you know, a little girl and could tell that there were some people who, you know, got their way by being mean and bullying and I wasn't going to put up with it then. Why would I put up with it now? So luckily I had a set of parents who for their own reasons instilled uh, a lot of confidence and resilience in me to keep going no matter what life threw at me. And I want to see more people do that. I'm not saying it's easy because it's not. It's really hard some days to go out and be called names and have people chanting to send you to prison when you know you've never done anything that would in any way merit that. It's hard to have people with the wrong impressions of you and and think you're something that you're not. It's all hard, but the struggle is worth it. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to keep doing my work through my group Onward Together, where we help organizations and candidates, and we're fighting back against voter suppression and everything that goes with it. And we're going to keep speaking out and finding ways to you know, try to make this a more perfect union. And I, I love the work. And I love it when we get something done, like helping to cut child poverty in half, which is what the American Rescue Plan will do. So 
you know, progress is hard and you're up against a lot of nasty forces on the other side that, you know, would rather you just uh, go slowly into that good night and disappear. But I'm not going anywhere, Jan. So, you know, there's just something about me. I'm staying, you know, in the fight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know you are. I know you are. Okay, time for another ad break. But for our last segment of this episode of Just Something About Her, I want to dig into some policy issues in question, specifically around guns and the filibuster. That's next on Just Something About Her with Secretary Hillary Clinton. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We're here with the woman who inspired this podcast, Secretary Hillary Clinton. There's a couple of things in the news that I know you care a lot about that I'm uh, interested to get your take on. So one is, what do we do about guns? We've had two massive shootings um, in the last week, one mm-hmm. with a lot of Asian American women mm-hmm. being killed. And uh, of course, just a few days ago in Colorado, I, mean, I remember a briefing book that you had that was several inches thick just on guns and the things that we could do to try to keep them out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. So interested in your take on this, but then of course, related to that is the filibuster. And, Mm -hmm, you know, and mm -hmm. you had Senator Cruz and others saying like, oh, we don't take away people's cars because there's car accidents. So why would you take away people's guns? But because of the filibuster, they're part of people standing in the way. So can you give me your take on both of these topics? Well, Jen, it's gotten to the point where it's clear that we have a gun worshiping problem in America. Uh, This goes far beyond any kind of constitutional right, which in my opinion as a recovering lawyer was misinterpreted by the Supreme Court. I'm very worried that people are forgetting we had a ban on assault weapons that my husband was able to work with the Congress back in the early 90s to pass when they also passed the Brady Bill. So we at least had some waiting period so that people like the shooter and killer in Atlanta couldn't just go buy a gun and when he was, quote, having a bad day and murder eight people. We had that in effect for 10 years nobody's guns were taken away. There was no black helicopter or tanks rolling up to people's houses to seize their lawful weapons. But the numbers of mass shootings went down, which meant the numbers of uh, deaths and injuries went down. And because of the Brady Bill, which needs to be amended so that it's more effective in the time of online sales, which were not really a big deal back in the early 90s, several millions of people who were ineligible to buy guns because they had a history of you know, criminal behavior. They were a former felon. They had a history of domestic violence or mental illness. And now the killer in Boulder, Colorado is having a lawyer claim that it was because of, quote, mental illness. Well, what was he doing with a weapon of war? So this is a truly terrible, frustrating debate because the opportunists on the other side, like Cruz and his ilk, they know better and they are in the 
position of trying to keep people really riled up and scared that sensible gun legislation like we had in the 90s for 10 years will somehow undermine their rights. Well, what about the rights of all the rest of us, the rights of us to go to work, go shopping, go on dates to the movie theater, go to school, for heaven's sakes. What about the rest of us? You know, democracy is the balancing of interests and rights. And unfortunately, at this time, the gun worshipers have a huge advantage because of the filibuster and because of their shameless exploitation of people's unwarranted fears. So the filibuster stands in the way of a lot of legislation and whether or not it can be either reformed and amended or eliminated is what we will find out in the next uh, weeks. It certainly should be lifted for constitutional matters and I would put election law matters at the top of that list because right now we had a good election, more people voted, it was fair, it was credible, it was certified by lots of Republican states, and the Republicans didn't like the result. And so being the result-oriented folks that they are, they're trying to change the rules to make it harder for people to vote and have their votes counted. And I do think this is a direct constitutional challenge to the rights of citizenship, to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, to a long line of cases. I also could argue that the interpretation of the Second Amendment is a constitutional issue as well, because it has totally upset the balance of weighing and scrutiny that should go with any kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm pretty worked up about what's going on. I looked, however, and 2020 was a terrible year for gun deaths. There were lots of suicides because people had access to weapons that they then decided to use on themselves. There was an uptick in domestic violence. Again, weapons lying around were easy to grab and use. So 2020 was a bad year for violence and gun violence in particular. And now here we are in 2021 and we're back into mass shootings and all of the usual excuses, justifications, and shameless posturing that we've seen all too often is on display. Yeah. We got lucky with the way everything turned out with the presidential election. You know, things just lined up just so. If Gretchen Whitmer had not been governor mm -hmm. of Michigan. Yeah, I know that very well. If we hadn't had a Democratic governor in Wisconsin. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Well, yeah. we had a Democratic governor in 2016, but we had all kinds of shenanigans, particularly on social media and all the rest, which you and I know so well. But we got lucky. We got lucky this time. And, and well, like we, got, we got lucky. Like and, but now it's under assault still. So that's like. But our, look at the Electoral College. Yeah. It was as close as it was for me. Right. You know, even though the popular vote expanded yeah. from three to, you know, seven and a half million or so for Biden's popular vote victory the numbers in the Electoral College were still, you know, breathtakingly close. And a move in Georgia, in Arizona, in, you know, one other state would have made the difference. So the Electoral College should go too, but that that's a whole other uh, <laughs> discussion. But this is like, it's like a democracy is still very much under assault. Like we just got, got lucky. We got a second chance. 100%. You are 100%, Jen. Yeah. You know, 
people who look at this and say, oh, look what a big victory Biden had, forget we have this thing called the Electoral College. And it wasn't that big a victory in the Electoral College. It was a big blowout victory in the popular vote. And that's how we should be choosing our presidents, by the way. Amen. <laughs> Leave it there. Madam Secretary, thank you so much. Really wonderful to see you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you Keep so going. much. We will. Onward. Take care. <laughs> Onward. <Okay>. Together. <laughs> Sarah, are you there? I am. I thought it was so interesting to see you two together, just like two friends working through some really tough issues. And especially ones that, you know, were so personal to both of you because you were in the line of fire. Had you ever had a conversation like that with her, actually? I have a little bit. You know, I went to see her. It was like the like fall of 17 as I was writing Dear Madam President. Mm -hmm. And I went to see her at her house in D.C. just to say, like, I think I get it now. <laughs> And it was with some, you know, regret, some guilt on my part, because in interactions we would, she and I would have in real time were really hard during the campaign, right? I'm the communications director, and I can't figure out a way to break through this idea that she's not likable or trustworthy, right? Mm -hmm. I'm failing, but I should have had more faith um, in her because every time I would bring these things to her attention or you know, admit that I don't quite know what to do here, or it doesn't seem like this is a problem we're going to solve in the campaign. Mm -hmm. She would not like, like, yeah, like this is what I was talking about in March of 2015. Right. There just wasn't a playbook for her and there wasn't a playbook for me. You know, sometimes I think about there's Hillary Rodham Clinton, who's like that thing that the sort of caricature mm -hmm. of this woman. And then there's Hillary Rodham, who, you know, very much speaks her mind. She's never cowed. She's very certain in what she says. And, you know, Hillary Rodham definitely showed up today. <laughs> no apologizing, right? There was mm -hmm. just like, this is why this happened. This is why it happened this way. I'm going to keep going. I'm always going to keep going. But like, I thought she was really good at just, you know, dissecting these, these views of women and then showing what's really at play. It just reminds me when you said there was no apologizing. I loved when you were like, I made you go on an apology tour after the email story broke. And you told me that was a bad idea, but I still made you do it. And then everyone called you inauthentic for it. Everyone turned it around to make you untrustworthy. And it's just so interesting that, you know, she had yeah. been going through this for so long. She knew what was going on. I thought one of the, the coolest parts was hearing her reflect on the 2020 election and 2018 for that matter, but how she right. was like, still no women won any caucus. I had not thought about it in those terms that no woman in the presidential campaign mm -hmm. won a caucus or a primary. It takes us a lot longer to buy into women candidates. It just does. Now, women had success in other parts. You know, in 2018, there was big success and there was success in 2020 in other races, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is still very vexing. You know, we've talked about this before, how previously I never thought of myself as a woman in a man's world, right? I just mm -hmm. thought that it was the world and I was doing great in it. And then I had this realization and a number of years ago where I was like, oh, no, what I'm doing is I'm making 
the man's world run well for them. When I realized that like I wasn't making the same kind of progress that my male colleagues was making, when I saw that glass ceilings across the board were not being shattered as I expected them to see, it was like, I'm just making the man's world run well for them, perpetuating mm-hmm. it, keeping it going. And what I want to tell Hillary Clinton is she made the world better for women. So true. Right? What she has done is like broken down that wall. So now we can see the ways in which, you know, women have been held back, the gender biases we all hold in our heads. And she's given us a model to follow to say, you know, she is making the world better for women. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Hillary Clinton for being on the show. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered the podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 